The gospel reading this morning is from the book of Matthew. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, or reap, or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Well, hello again, everyone. It's great to be here with you. And uh, I know I say that every Sunday, and it sounds like kind of like boilerplate, pastoral, you know, stuff. Um, But I really do enjoy being here with you. And not every pastor actually likes their church. They may love their people, but they may not like them that much. And um, I really like you guys. And I just thought about it driving in today uh, as it's so beautiful out, and we have this remarkable place that we live in, and just a plethora of options on a Sunday morning, Uh, and I just enjoy coming and, you know, seeing you guys, in spite of the fact that I'm not, like, on a snowboard or, you know, at the beach or whatever, because you guys are lovely people, and I want you to know that I also appreciate you being here, um, because you're lovely to one another as well. As you noticed from the passage, probably, uh, we're talking about um, money this morning, and I've had this sort of uh, hope or dream to talk about um, money when we weren't in a financial emergency, and it took a long, long time to get there, to have that opportunity, Um, because if you've been around the last couple of months, um, things are reasonably stable. Um, We need to grow, uh, as almost every church does, but um, we've seen this groundswell of generosity and new people coming and starting to connect uh, their giving and resources to their new church and so forth. Um, And so I get to talk about greed, talk about money um, in just a normal kind of everyday Sunday. And I don't think we've ever done that before at InTown, so I'm kind of excited And we get to talk specifically about greed, not because everyone in here is particularly greedy, hopefully not, and not because we have this critical shortfall that we need to shore up. Uh, Most 
sermons on money are kind of transparent. They're connected to some particular thing uh, that is more money. But this is an issue that we all deal with, whether we are Christians or not. We deal with how we think about money and how we engage with the resources that we have and with our jobs, uh, a sense of meaning. What, did that, what does that mean? What does our paycheck mean to us, and how do we then use it? That we ask these questions, at least we're thinking about it, uh, somewhat regularly in our everyday life. In Dostoevsky's The Idiot, the character Prince, Prince Mishkin is sort of the ideal virtuous person. Uh, critics have said this is kind of Dostoevsky's uh, perfect vision of a Christian person. And he's upright, he's guileless, he's emotionally intelligent. And even at 29, he's kind of a storehouse of wisdom. And in the story, he returns to Russia after being in Switzerland for about four years um, in a sanitarium, working on being treated for epilepsy. And he comes back with this claim to have a very large inheritance. But the interesting thing is, is that he doesn't seem to be all that captivated by this amount of money. He doesn't seem to care all that much, which to the people of St. Petersburg, Uh, who Dostoevsky apparently thinks are obsessed with money, is very perplexing, very peculiar. He's a very strange person, and they come to just call him the idiot. That's the title of the book. And I think Dostoevsky is forcing us to ask, who is the real idiot? For whom... Mishkin, for whom wealth is rather uninteresting, is he the idiot or everyone else, perhaps including the readers, for whom money is this obsessive pursuit? We don't really have purpose with our money. We just know we want more. And in our context, in a situation where we live in a country, presuming you are residents here, We live in a context that has a similar infatuation with wealth, with money, with having more. And I guess the question that we should ask if we are interested in Christianity, if we're part of the church, is how many Christians are considered idiots because of their lack of care for money? We're considered idiots for a number of things, but it's not for being unattached to money. Do we, I guess take the words of Jesus seriously in this matter. He talks about money a lot. Do we take him seriously? Now, some of you may have heard this story, but in 2007, I bought my very first, what I would consider a nice car. I had driven some clunkers along the way, and, you know, progressively, my cars have gotten a little bit nicer, but this was the first, like, really nice car. And it was a reasonably late model Volvo turbo wagon. And it was pretty fast. And I really enjoyed it. It had like leather seats, power, everything, had tinted windows. And I drove it home to my neighborhood. We were living in Silicon Valley at the time. And had the windows down, it was beautiful out. And the neighbor across the street said, Hey, Brian, that sure is a nice car. I was like, Yeah, it is. But he had a little bit of, like, resentment, maybe, in his mind. Now, the problem was I bought this car with a rebuilt title. And if you're not a car nerd, 
in this room, let me just explain for the non-car geeks. That this means that it's been in some kind of wreck, some kind of accident, and the insurance company, instead of paying for it to be rebuilt physically, they pay the owner to buy a new car, and then they sell this wrecked car to someone who's going to fix it and then sell it again. Now, sometimes the damage is quite fixable, and you may be buying a virtually brand new car for half the price, but it's a gamble because you may not be. Well, I got the not, not the brand new car. The car drove perfectly fine. In fact, it was there's nothing wrong with it mechanically. I almost never had to fix the drivetrain. But after a few months, I noticed this little kind of quarter-sized blemish in the paint that was a little bit cloudy. And over subsequent months, it kind of expanded over the entire car. I don't know if you've ever tried to repaint a car, but it's expensive. Then the sunroof stopped working, and it stopped working in the open position. And by then, we had moved to Oregon, and that doesn't work here. <laughs> then someone borrowed my car, my mom, and decided to take a nap in the car because she was waiting to pick up one of my kids, and she reclined the power seats all the way back, and it stayed there <laughs> and would not come back. The uh, list goes on and on, but perhaps the most infuriating little quirk was that every time I unlocked the doors with the little key fob, the rear windshield wiper <laughs> did that two or three times, almost as if to say, hey, dummy, remember what a terrible purchase this was? So there's nothing wrong, and I'm not implying that buying or wanting a nice car is in any way necessarily greedy or evil. But for me, while I was excited about driving this car, because it was fast and comfortable, I have to admit that I really was looking forward to that neighbor or, or the you know, fictional neighbor saying, hey, that's a really nice car. I was looking forward to inhabiting this idea that I could not only drive a nice car, but I could afford a nice car. But I couldn't, really. I could afford one you know, with a rebuilt title. I could afford one that had been driven into a river. I don't know if that's what happened. I never found out. But it makes me think about, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin or wrecks, where thieves can break in and steal. Jesus is not saying here, you know, be careful. If you're greedy and you buy yourself nice things, then he's going to break all your stuff because that's what you deserve. What he's saying here is that we tend to overvalue things that are transient and depreciating, and we tend to undervalue those things that are lasting and that have increasing value. It's a perspective thing. The point really isn't about owning nice things, but it's about this obsessive pursuit that we have for things, for stuff, that can get broken, that can depreciate, that can be stolen. And how, because he connects this to this a few verses later, how that keeps us in a place of anxiety and it keeps us in a place of discontentment. Colin Campbell, who is a British 
sociologists, and I quoted him in your bulletin, says, it's a central fact of modern consumer behavior that the gap between wanting and getting never actually closes. The gap between wanting and getting never actually closes. And then Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sorry, that was loud. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's this really depressing image. It's as if you piled up all of the stuff that you really cared about out in your yard or your garage, all of your best clothing, your car, your house, and Jesus points at it and says, see that pile of stuff? There's your heart. It's sitting out in your yard. There is your heart. Now, things, money, possessions, stuff, these are amoral. They're inert. They're not really the problem in and of themselves. They don't have power over us. But they do serve, they do act as depositories, and they act as diagnostics. Things, stuff, possessions can be depositories because we can store in them all of our loves, all of our passions, all of our meaning. In fact, we can make our passions and loves so small by encasing them in our stuff. These things can serve as depositories, and it's like investing our life savings in a bad stock that we can kind of watch the ticker and watch it depreciate. That's what Jesus is saying, is that our treasure, when we attach it, when we attach our hearts, our loves to these things, they depreciate. And it's this sad image. It's like a deflating balloon. But they're also diagnostic tools because our possessions, our stuff, our things can reveal what we really love. They can reveal what our real rather than our professed values are. They reveal the location of our heart because money flows most easily to those things that we love. It's easy to spend on things that we're excited about, right? And when we're excited about stuff, we sacrifice almost anything to get it. And Jesus is saying, there's your heart. There's your love. And it's just so depressing. The eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Well, as you are all aware, our eyes keep us from bumping into stuff, bumping into each other, keep us from walking around in circles or walking off a cliff and in the same way, Jesus says that we have a spiritual eye. We have spiritual eyesight that can lead us into flourishing, into joy, into increasing life, or it can lead us in circles. It can lead us to run into things. If we focus upon the transient, then we fall in love more with the transient. In fact, in some way, we ourselves become more transient. We become more ephemeral. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the transcendentalist that you probably had to read in your 10th grade lit class, he says, the gods we worship write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. 
and a man will worship something, that which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be very careful about what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. This is, friends, why Jesus talks so much about money. It's not to give pastors a lot of stuff for sermons on money when the giving declines. And it's not because he doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to have stuff. He wants to deprive you. That's not it. But he wants instead to keep us from impoverishing ourselves. He wants to keep us from dividing ourselves, which is what we've spent so much time talking about in the Being Well series. Greed, after all, is one of the the deadly sins in the Bible because greed sort of takes the life out of us. It impoverishes us. It divides us. No one can serve two masters. And when we try, we, we get pulled apart. We get divided. Our desires go in different ways. And what he's saying is he wants us to live in an integrated way so that our desires are pulling our body, pulling our spirit, pulling our life in the same direction, that we are integrated people. Well, how might we do this? We looked at some of the the dangers. Does he give us some solutions here? Well, one of them is storing up treasures in heaven. If you are familiar with the the prodigal son's story, the elder brother, he is the hoarder while the prodigal son is the spender. But in one way, if you look look at it, this is basically two sides of the same coin. One is careless with wealth and the other is beholden to it, but neither of them gives. Neither of them thinks about their resources with a picture of other people. Neither of them has charitable interest in their resources. Neither gives. Now, Aristotle, like a million years ago, made the argument that free spending, that is the prodigal son's sin, is a lesser evil rather than hoarding because at least the free spender has a generous impulse. Now, it might be directed Internally, it might be directed inward. It just needs to be retrained. It needs to be redirected to more altruistic or virtuous ends. Well, that parable that Jesus tells us seems to hit on something similar. Because even though we call it the parable of the prodigal son, it's just as much a commentary on the stinginess of the elder brother, the hard-heartedness of the elder brother. Because he is... Greedy, and like most greedy people, he's insecure. You generally are insecure before you become greedy because you're using your money, your stuff, in order to shore up security, either with other people's image of you or with actual financial security. You have more money at the end of the month than you did at the beginning, or you still have some, I should say. And we know this because we see him get irate at how cavalierly his brother uses his money. 
He's cavalier with his money, and he gets away with it. And this can't stand. This can't happen. Dad, go be mad at him. Look what he's done with your inheritance. He's been careless. You see, his brother, the prodigal son, is really blaspheming the elder brother's God. Not God big G, but his God small g. He's stepping on it because he's not valuing it like the elder brother does. He's, the elder brother wouldn't be so indignant if the money didn't matter so much to him. No one should be able to be so cavalier with money and get away with it. I've got to stop this. You see, the sad thing, friends, about this is that somewhere deep in his mind, his soul, he knows how precarious his happiness is. He knows it's attached to the stuff, things, money, his dad's approval. His treasure, you see, is very earthbound. It could be taken out in the yard and said, there's your heart. He can't live without his inheritance, without his father recognizing and celebrating how well he's done protecting his in contrast to his stupid younger brother. Now, the solution for the elder brother, obviously, is not to shift to the other extreme and become a spendthrift. Nor is it to sort of shame him with the truth. You know money isn't everything. You know money isn't life. Stop caring so much. We know that doesn't work, right? Have you tried that in your own life? I'm going to stop caring about the thing I love. We can't just stop loving what we love. We have to have an alternative. And we know this from people that get married because isn't that kind of a dumb investment? I mean, you're saying that this one person of all the billions of people that live on the earth, I'm going to connect my future and my happiness with this one person. It's like investing your life savings in one stock when there's billions of other options out there. But why do you do that? Why would anyone do that? It's because you love that person more than you love the billions of other people. And you love that person more than you love the option of loving the other people. And you have to die to that. But just saying... Quit loving these other people. Quit looking at these other people, which never works. What happens is you fall so madly in love with this person that you willingly go down the aisle and say, I will spend my life with this person. And you do it joyfully. You're not dragged there, at least hopefully not. You want to. And it's a crazy investment, but you do it anyway because you have this alternative vision of what your life can become connected to this person. Jesus is not saying that there's some treasury of merit out there, that the more good deeds you do, the more merit you have, the more rewards and whatnot. And he's not saying that, you know, I recognize that being a miser here on earth is not all that fun, but hey, when you get to heaven, it's going to be all worthwhile. But I think what is deeper than that, what he's saying, like we talked about in our last series, is where we talked about this image of the garden in the past and this image of the city in the future. 
that they are meant to guide our lives in the in-between, in this time. And instead of this grotesque image of pointing to a car or a closet full of clothes or an investment portfolio or a wine cellar, instead of saying to those things, there's my heart, what we look at is those things that should exist and did exist in a garden and in the future city that we want to exist now, we say, there, there's my heart. That's what I want to connect my passions to. And the only way you can is not just by telling yourself to love those things more, but to try it, to give, to actively connect your heart to those things. You begin to invest your money in alleviating the suffering of someone else in a specific way, a tangible way. That our budgeting, our spending, takes this cruciform shape. And we begin to think about our money as, well, these are tools that get after the life that Jesus wants for this world and wants us to live. And so we begin to actually do that, not just think about it, but we actually follow Jesus in this way. Maybe we begin by underwriting the reduction of some individual's poverty. Or maybe we begin to underwrite the reduction of systemic poverty, which is equally important, if a little bit more vague. Maybe we spend money on someone else's ministry to prisoners who just need someone to come and befriend them. And if you can't go, maybe we invest in someone else to do it. Maybe towards clothing and education, towards friendship for underprivileged children in the foster care system or in the public school system, anywhere. And as we begin to do that, we begin to find that, wow, that feels really good. You know that experience, right? If you've given your money to something and you, you get to see this transformation happen, even if it's small, and you have that joy. It's not pride. It's joy. It's delight. Wow. I was at work, and I wrote that email or that series of emails, or I did that project this week, or I put together this presentation, and yeah, it helped our company move forward, and that's great. But wow, I got compensated, and I used part of that compensated compensation to really change someone's life. That's why we talk again and again about the offering here, not in utilitarian ways. This is how we keep the lights on, so please give. But because giving is a primary means of spiritual maturity, because choosing in tangible ways to direct our vision, to direct our eye, our spiritual eye towards those things that really matter to Jesus helps align our hearts, helps align our lives and thus are becoming with Jesus. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And this word here, healthy, is not just well-being. A lot of scholars have done some research, and what healthy in that context meant, at least had a primary meaning, wasn't just that eyes were undiseased and functioning well. It meant that eyes were full of generosity, and so what Jesus is saying is that if your eyes are full of generosity, then your whole body will be 
healthy. Giving, you see, isn't just a goal, it's a cure. It's a way of being healthy. It's a way of being well because we're actively extricating our hearts from things that are transient and corrupting and sometimes enslaving. Jesus, you see, doesn't say do this or else, but he says do this and be free. Do this and be alive. Join me in giving away your riches for others so that you can become genuinely rich. One of the more captivating discoveries of the 20th century was the discovery of King Tut's tomb and recognizing that all of these gigantic pyramids are basically big mausoleums. That there was this intensive movement of labor and a lot of dying to construct these pyramids and encase the king with an enormous amount of riches that no one could ever use again and then mummify this dead, rotting corpse at the cost of thousands of slave lives. Well, Jesus has no riches in his tomb, and when the women go to the tomb, they find it empty. They find nothing. He was completely impoverished, and yet he was alive. Yet he was joyful, and he was full of delight. Instead of hoarding his riches, building a huge monument or mausoleum, seeking to surround himself with constant sensuality and pleasure like so many kings in the past have done and so many after. He gives everything away. He gives himself away. And he gives himself to you. And that's what we come and celebrate here in a moment. And that's the motivation to give. Not because you should. Not because Jesus will be mad if you don't. But because you come alive like he comes alive in giving himself, in shaping your budget in a cruciform way. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you giving the greatest gift that we could ever comprehend to us, that is, your own son. And we pray that that gift would follow us out these doors that it would change the way that we live, that it would change the way that we save and spend, that it would change others' lives outside of these doors because your people have been called to extricate themselves from self-love through money and through possessions so that we can truly alleviate the burdens of our neighbors just outside and around the world. And we pray that you would do that even this week In Jesus' name, amen.